Geraldine Jameson on Manx Radio. Hello and a very warm welcome to my regular summer interlude in which over the next two months there will be a second opportunity to listen to a selection of my favourite programme guests. This week's choice was a particular favourite of mine. Kate Aidy, OBE, is the BBC's chief news correspondent and became one of the best-known faces on television for her reporting from the major wars of recent years. Indeed, it became something of a joke in the British Army that when Kate Aidy arrived on the scene, the soldiers knew that they were in trouble. Well, Kate's coverage of conflicts and major events ranged from Libya, Kuwait, Iraq and Bosnia to the troubles in Northern Ireland, the Tiananmen Square student uprising to the Zeebrugge and Dunblane disasters. Now Kate presents from our own correspondent on Radio 4 and reports for BBC World TV. Her autobiography, The Kindness of Strangers, was published by Headline last year, to be followed in very quick succession and just published by Hodder and Stoughton, another tour de force entitled Corsets to Camouflage, in association with Women and War, a major exhibition at the Imperial War Museum in London. Well, warm congratulations, Kate, um, from journalist and reporter to turned successful author. I mean, it is said that there is a book in every one of us, but to become a full-bodied author, you have to write and publish two, at least. So was this a giant leap for you? Well, uh, apart from that, it was <laughs> something which I don't think I'll ever attempt again, two books in two years. <laughs> it's, it's, don't do it, anybody. <laughs> it's absolute madness. But it came about because... Um, there is a time. It wasn't so much that there was a book buried in me as I got nagged by all my friends and people who said, come on, write it all down. You know, you've got, got the tales in there about um, what you've been lucky enough to do. So I put all of that into the autobiography. And at the same time, life is like this. The Imperial War Museum came along and said, we're going to have an exhibition about women in uniform at the museum in London. And... Um, would you like to write something to go with this? I think they had on in their minds a sort of small pamphlet. And I got hugely excited and sort of threw myself into, you know, a, a huge pile of books and stuff and went off and interviewed people and produced a book. But their um, exhibition comes out at a particular time. So I thought, oh, God, there's a second deadline. So um, um, I, d I just I just buried myself, you know. And, but this, uh, this, this latest book, though, is a tour de force, as I said, because it's, it's historic. Now, it must have been fairly... Well, not easy. I mean, writing a book is never easy. Um, but your autobiography surely just fell into place a lot, a lot more easily, shall we say? But the, the research and everything that you've, you've, you've had to do for this. Let's get started at the beginning. Um, you were brought up in the northeast of England. Um, you went to this Sunderland Church High School, a militant Anglican foundation, <laughs> and on Wednesdays, the wonderful headmistress there d thought that uh, you, you uh, nice young ladies, should be educated. Uh, further with talks, you know, from worthies, from a, a well, cellist who had difficulty with her cello where she was going to put it between the legs and all this sort of thing. But but what stri strikes me in this part of your book, um, there were these two battle axes of women in highly uncomplimentary uniforms, biliously coloured tree trunks, they looked like, you said, with shoes that would have marched from Sunderland to Moscow. And they were from the Women's Royal Army Corps and the Women's Royal Air Force. But there and then, actually, that you decided, because of them, that uniform was not for you. The reason why I put that in 
begin with that quite a lot of people ask today and say, would you ever have become a soldier? You know, I seem to have hung around the military for a good number of years. And the answer has never crossed my mind. First of all, girls on the whole from Maynay School, um, the headmistress, as you say, was really rather keen that we should possibly become missionaries and go to um, distant places and save souls, you know, people who didn't know. And so we, get lot, we got lots of lectures from uh, completely unhinged bishops who used to come and bellow us at us on a Wednesday afternoon and, um, and, and go on about, you know, it was terribly, terribly tragic with the piano that you all subscribed to. I was eaten by t- Termites, right, this sort of thing. And um, none of us was clearly going to be a missionary. That was the last thing on our little teenage minds. And on one of these days, in came these two women. And we were just stupefied. I mean, they just looked horrifying. Our idea, there we were, a bunch of adolescents, longing, longing to grow up and wear hugely, you know, stiletto heels, hugely high heels, preferably in pink, you know, mm-hmm. and um, fishnets, stockings and oh, we couldn't wait to get makeup on and when we saw two grown-up women come in who were dressed I think um dressed to kill all passion and anything else I mean these women just looked awful to our minds and then they talked about their jobs and I mean we I suppose were thinking faintly oh, well if you're in the army what you do and it appeared that they did secretarial jobs but wearing these terrible clothes. Actually, you, you also write that you never heard a word they said in, in, in the lecture. You were so sort of stupefied. It's just the vision of it. And it's, it's an important thing about uniform. Uniform is intended to convey a message. That's why uh, you put people in uniform. And it all started off uh, really in this country and across Europe in the 17th, 18th centuries when you got armies on battlefields which weren't actually issued with a uniform uh, most of the time because they were just loyal to certain people rather than countries. And on battlefields, it was quite common in the 1700s and particularly in the 1600s uh, for people to get in a muddle as to who was fighting for who. And it was as simple as that. You wore a uniform. They were issued by the the leaders, the rich men, the kings, the the generals, in order to say, uh, you belong to me. And so you could distinguish people. And that was the whole point. You were meant, and then later, you were meant to convey an image. Uh, you were a fighter for uh, a particular nation. It was the warrior image, really. I mean, Absolutely. you actually begin with, with that referring to the Vikings, yes. um, which is interesting because you went to Newcastle University and took a degree in Scandinavian studies. Indeed, and spent Monday mornings being told, really, you know, 42 ways in which you could actually kill people with an axe. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not good after a Newcastle weekend out, I can tell you. Um, so there was lots of things about uh, warriors, Viking bear circus, the people who wore bear shirts, shirts made of bear hide. And um, there was much about um, military matters. But for me, it was purely academic because as a girl, I certainly hadn't you know, played with the airfix kit or been interested in the Battle of Alamein. You know, I did the embroidery lessons and ballet lessons. Not my thing at all. So going and looking at the origins in uniform was for me something of a uh, a real uh, sort of voyage of discovery because I'd never had any inklings that way. Yes, ever. It's, it's the power of uniform, really. Mm. The social attitudes that it both provokes and in, indeed reflects. But just um, hanging on to this bit where, where, where these two women actually put you off, the idea of ever wearing uniform. I mean, you, you weren't too happy with the girl guides even. Um, 
but there is a lovely, charming picture of you smiling in battle dress camouflage on, on the reverse flyleaf of your new book. Many, many, many years later after school. Well, that was when I went off to the Gulf War as one of the pool um, media, the British um, media who um, went with 7th Armoured uh, Brigade in 1990 to Saudi Arabia um, and eventually went uh, with the army on the liberation of Kuwait. And it was decided by the military um, at that time that we should actually join up. I found myself actually signing on the dotted line. It was absolutely horrifying. Uh, you're a middle-aged woman. You're about to go and uh, join up. It's a sort of camping with attitude, you know, sort of, um, they gave you a tent but didn't tell you how to put it up. And we journalists spent most of the time underneath it, you know, in the sense of underneath it, it not having its tent poles up, you know, <laughs> just sort of wriggling around saying, why don't I put the damn thing up? I bet and you wish you'd paid attention to, as a girl guide. I never, oh, I never made it to a girl guide. I was a brownie. I was so horrified by the brownie uniform, which made you look like a sort of pregnant hamster tied with string. The idea of actually spending one's teenage years looking like something blue tied, I have no thank you. Not my, I'm not into that sort of thing. I never wanted to be part of the group in that sense and be part of the uniformed group. Didn't impress me. And so that's why I was so interested to wonder why people join up. What is the attraction of it? And there I was in the middle of Saudi Arabia in 1990. And uh, one of the whole points about uniform is that um, it depends enormously on rank and on also fashion, attitude, style, lots of other things. So whether you ever get a uniform that fits. And you will notice, I think some of your listeners would remember the very famous uh, picture of some woman in uniform um, within living memory was the present queen when she was Princess Elizabeth um, tinkering with an army lorry while dressed in rather fetching khaki, which appears to be very well cut. Wonderful waist. Yes, well, clearly this was made for her by some frightfully, frightfully grand tailor, one assumes. Whereas, I have to say, <laughs> most reality. uniforms, the reality is that I was faced with a trestle table in the middle of Saudi Arabia with an RAF clerk looking at me. And when I said, uniform? And he said, uh, over there, ma'am. And I said, uh, which is mine? He said, you better go and find it. Uh, <laughs> it's just like being at the sales at a very bad selection of clothes <laughs> and being horrified because you knew you had to come out with something thing at the end otherwise you'd be stark naked and I spent a frantic time and the only way to do it because there are other you know all the other men and there were no other women there all the other men in the um media group went for this sort of trestle table uh, they were beaten to it by me I've been to the sales <laughs> straight in there there's only one thing you do they're all selecting a pair of trousers and the jacket I got a massive armful and fled with it <laughs> <laughs> to try and find something that fitted. Well, there's also, of course, another very obvious disadvantage of women and war. And you mentioned Saudi Arabia there. The, the basic lack of lavatories around the world. Now, it may seem trivial, but when you're in a frontline unit with 2,000 men in the desert, in Saudi Arabia in particular, which is flat and has no sand dunes, no trees and no bushes. I mean, there must be some practical difficulties, to say the least. And it wasn't the first time I'd encountered it. I do remember years ago, before women were ever accepted on warships, I was on HMS Hermes, which was the commando carrier. This is decades ago, and I spent an, uh, a couple of... Oh, more than a couple of nights on it, which first we absolutely horrified um, everybody because I, I got out of this helicopter which plonked onto the deck. And I remember being, my very charming naval officer said, oh, my God, a woman. 
<laughs> Welcome to the ship. Mm. And, and it immediately puts the, used to put them in a tiz. And eventually, um, when it came to the business of the heads, uh, the naval um, loos, um, they found um, one of the uh, male lavatories. There were only male lavatories, you see, on board on this uh, commander carrier. And they uh, explained that the way uh, it was to be used, that if I wish to use the f- facilities, ma'am, um, I sort of told someone, and a Royal Marine arrived, and, and sort of escorted me and then stood guard outside the lavatory <clears throat> while one was in there. That was an enormous fandango. And you were made very, very conscious that, admittedly, there it was, a warship. It wasn't, you know, it didn't have frilly things on it like ladies lose. So it was a problem. But it was treated as a problem, not as something which uh, maybe they, you know... Um, Perhaps, should uh, do something about uh, yeah. yeah. But when it came to the desert, I mean, that really was a problem because I was in um, a group of 2,000 men um, with the uh, 7th Armoured Brigade and was the only woman. This is 1990, and before you even saw many women coming even nearer to a front line um, in uh, a ground operation, in other words, you know, sort of tanks and infantry and all of that. And there were very few women because the Women's Royal Army Corps was still in existence, a separate group of women, as it were, not integrated, but a separate corps of women. And they did certain jobs, but they weren't anywhere near the sort of fighting front line. So there was muggins in this desert. Um, Not, I have to say, thank God, this bizarre uh, phrase has come up recently with the Americans who went around saying in the last little... um, uh, operation that uh, uh, they were going to have embedded journalists. They weren't embedded at all in the sense of being with them because they didn't even join the forces. They were just stuck in a car park north of Kuwait um, and information was relayed to them. I, um, uh, one of the <coughs> least direct bits of reporting I've seen for a long time. But the point about it was that uh, thank God we didn't have the phrase back in 1990. It would have been AD embedded with 2,000 men um, and, and no lavatories either, uh, which became a nightmare in the end an absolute nightmare mm. but it was <laughs> <laughs> doesn't bear thinking about this present day and age Kate well it was of course your coverage everyone will remember this of the 1980 siege of the Iranian embassy that that changed all that it brought you to prominence as one of the few women reporting difficult and dangerous stories at the time now you describe yourself that this turn your career took was largely accidental. Oh, I was on shift as a junior reporter. I mean, you never set out to go into war zones, did you? And I never set out to be a reporter. Let's take it right back to the beginning. I fell into local radio uh, at the very start of the BBC's experiment with local radio uh, back in (coughs) a long time ago. Just after, in fact, just a year or two after uh, this radio station started up. So, you know, um, goes back a long way. And I never intended to be a reporter. Again, go back to my headmistress. A reporter? What's a reporter? Grabby person, you know, stands around on street corners, you know, importuning strangers and asking them a rude question. <laughs> Certainly not what a girl was expected to do. I had no intention of going into journalism or of any sort of um, uh, press job whatsoever. I joined the BBC because I had a completely eccentric degree in Swedish and ancient, ancient Icelandic. And um, I grabbed the opportunity to try and get into the BBC because broadcasting looked fun. And I spent a um, very happy a number of years as a producer, technician, or doing all the jobs right from the bottom upwards in local radio with nary a thought about being a journalist. And then found myself sort of just falling into it eventually via local television, where I was not 
terribly good at it. I, I mean, I'm not being falsely modest. I, I really did. I cocked up a great number of things. <laughs> I didn't know how to do television. I it was very odd and I didn't, I wasn't a natural by any means. And then again, by a number of extraordinary coincidences, I fetched up in the London newsroom. And as a general reporter there, I began to take on stories which um, were just the lot of, of the person who turned up on the doorsteps with a pair of legs, you know, and they sent mm. you off to do it. And there was no thought of any specialization. Um, and we were, as you said, going over to Northern Ireland a lot in those days. So you got a taste of difficult situations and complex ones. And then along came the Iranian embassy siege. But I was still pretty junior then. And um, so I was how, on... how did you stand out then? How did... Because Muggins was on shift on the bank holiday Monday night. You see, you didn't get the sort of daytime job when everybody was watching television. You got the overnight, which meant, you know, um, uh, you s sat around on the pavement. Or if you were lucky, you managed to crawl in. There was a colleague's car, which we managed to creep under the cordon near the Iranian embassy. So you spent the night, you know, sort of snoring in the front seat of a Ford Escort, surrounded by, uh, you know, previous fish and chip meals, you know, the other reporters had eaten. Not exactly glamorous. And I was due on at 8 o'clock that night, a rather grander, older reporter had called in and sort of said he was doing the um, daytime shift, but he had a dinner party to go to. So, you know, could the junior come in you know, a bit early? Oh, yeah. So I turned up. I turned up a bit earlier than I thought. There was no traffic on the roads. Um, so I suddenly zoomed in, found myself central London about half past six. Uh, six, six. I got there about 6.15, I think. And uh, he'd already left, gone off. Seven o'clock, it all happened. So chance. Yeah. Chance. But it's amazing. I mean, it's 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 destiny, isn't it? Your fate must have been etched there, actually, <laughs> because of, you, you took off after that. Your face fitted. Well, I found myself doing um, the sort of stories which I'd never have dreamed of doing and of traveling abroad as well and going into situations where I genuinely used to think to myself, how do we do this? I mean, I wasn't wasn't that I wasn't prepared. I was very keen. I was fascinated. But I felt, you know, where are the guidelines? I was never trained for a day as a reporter. And I sort of found my own way through it and, and had to find out just what you um, you did in the sense of, um, you know, how many people to talk to, what you do, do you write everything down, how many people do you interview, what, how do you judge what is significant? It was a huge challenge. Mm. Mm. And no thought of danger, of course. Oh, well, I mean, if you'd actually written the, day, you know, the words danger and a red neon sign and flashed it at me, I'd have probably sort of rushed off and become a chartered accountant. I mean, <laughs> um, I'd never thought of that. I didn't actually desire the challenge of, nor have I ever found, and in retrospect, and I'm absolutely can about this. I don't actually think that I'm turned on, you know, by the, the whole business. I am a big scaredy puss. I'm a five foot eight chicken. It runs backwards very fast. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't have said that because I was going to say that um, there's a, a good comparison here, really, with um, courses to camouflage because you begin, we, we talked about the Vikings, but you really begin, you know, sort of pre-Florence uh, Nightingale times, the, the Balkan Wars, the Crimea, and so forth. Um, and, and to Fanny, well, Fanny, of course, was, was uh, new to myself. And for those that are a bit horrified with this, <laughs> myself mentioning this word on a Sunday morning, um, it really is first aid nursing yeomanry and women doctors in particular well women in total but I mean women doctors um, the, the, uh, obviously above just plain nursing skill I mean, they had to overcome huge prejudice. Well, and they did. You're looking at um, the sort of uh, um, 
inheritors of a Victorian education and Edwardian habits and uh, conventions at the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And uh, the suffragette movement and the suffragist movement, gaining the vote for women, was just getting underway in Edwardian days. And into the middle of this, uh, a world in which women had nothing to do with the military. The Victorians had cleared out the women who had been around on battlefields in previous centuries as the women who cooked, cleaned, did laundry, and did some kind of nursing. They weren't actually nurses. They were tarts, and they went with an army, and they serviced it. And all of these women had been around um, during the Peninsula Wars, the wars, Wellington's campaigns. All of these women were around, and some actually fought. And it was a mixed army that went towards a battlefield in many ways. The Victorians cleared this up and said, excuse me, chaps sort of thing. And they built barracks, which were like monasteries, and women didn't go into them. And it was a male-only kind of institution that was created. Same with the Navy, where women were thrown off the ships, where they had been during Nelson's time. There were always women aboard. And you came into an Edwardian age in 1900, where women had nothing to do with the military, really, whatsoever, except for Florence Nightingale's nurses, from the Crimean onwards, 40 years before. And even she, for the rest of her life struggled to gain respectability for these women. It was still a bit iffy. In the Boer War, right at the end of the 19th century, the male um, military doctors in South Africa wouldn't permit the nurses sent to South Africa to go unescorted to the wards, and they wouldn't admit them onto the wards after nightfall. The nurses just weren't allowed to be there. They were still feeling that they're not very nice sort of women. They'd get up to something. But, but then there, was the there was the other end of the scale where where you got, um, you know, the Lady Bountifuls who normally would have been dispensing charity back home and so forth. But they seem to have an ambition to break away from this conventional society. If we take her Grace Millicent, the Dowager Duchess of Sutherland. Now, she apparently ran one of the best Red Cross hospitals throughout the whole of the First World War in Calais. But she'd actually arrived in France um, behind enemy lines, behind the, the German and Belgian lines. She flummoxed the Germans because she started to sort of care for their wounded. She didn't care who they were. Uh, very, very typical. A grand, stylish, intelligent, resourceful and confident Edwardian lady. And this was the interesting thing that lay behind the whole push towards getting women um, recognised as doing something useful in the First World War. The Fanny has started off, same sort of ladies really, really rather sort of nice sort of upper class girls. Well but who were hugely frustrated. They, their, their lives consisted of doing good works, voluntary work, um, uh, very prescribed by the clothes they wore and by the kind of conventions of just tea party, social round, etc. But these women, a lot of them were resourceful, intelligent, as women everywhere are. And they finally come the First World War. They saw an opportunity, a strange one in a way, with the country at war. They realised, though, sort of um, maybe subconsciously, this was the moment when the gate might open and they could get out into something other than a narrow social round. People like Millicent Sutherland, this amazing duchess who charged off on the first day of war to France wearing her little um, Red Cross uniform, uh, taking uh, a small band of medical people with her. Uh, she went right through the front lines, which weren't even formed then. It was such a you know, first day of war. Ended up on the German side and then bellowed at the German um, 
commander uh, who'd taken um, and was occupying Brussels and looked at him as if he was a piece of social nothing and said, haven't I met you somewhere before? Like Baden Baden? Oh, nobody. Uh, I demand that you repatriate me and my people, and which he did. Mm-hmm. He was absolutely overawed. And she went straight back to, to London got more money together, more medical supplies, and crossed to France again and founded this hospital. And alongside her were hundreds and hundreds and later thousands of women who left their Edwardian lives and ended up on the battlefields of France. Now, they weren't actually fighting, but they were right in amongst it. The nurses, the VADs, they came under shell fire. Women drove the fanny. These extraordinary women drove ambulances right up to the front lines. They collected the wounded. Uh, they got endless endless um, citations They for weren't bravery. supposed to do that, though, were they? No, women. It was considered absolutely shocking. In fact, the shock to the system, back to the whole country, of what women began to do in the war. Men who went off to fight uh, the huge, great, terrible death toll of the First World War um, left gaps in society of people like bus conductors, um, people working in the shipyards, people working the steelworks, Men, men, men's jobs. And the women started to take them. Of course, that's where we got the land army, wasn't the it? The land army as well. And all of these people, and also a great number of um, uh, ordinary women who were in domestic service, very put upon by Madam Above Stairs, they saw the chance of getting jobs, admittedly they were dirty and dangerous, in the factories making munitions. Mm. But they got a real wage. Exactly. Mm. Well, uh, uh, this fascinates me, I must say, before we leave the Dowager Duchess of Southern, uh, because there's a wonderful picture in your book, of course, it's to camouflage Kate. She was outdone, actually, in style and morale building by the younger, prettier and perhaps maybe more resourceful Constance, Duchess of Westminster. Now, she used to go around at night visiting these wounded and so on, lying on pallets, donned in tiara and very low evening dress. She had all her society ladies with her, the ones you mentioned, the rather butterfly ones who'd come to help. Constance was having none of this. She said, you're going to do some real work. And she was years ahead of her time because... The men were coming in with terrible wounds and, you know, surgery in those days was pretty rough and ready and they did what the medical people did what they could. Constance realised that men coming back from battle needed something else. They needed their minds and spirits looking at. And she said nothing will lift the spirit more than we build morale. And all her ladies got into beautiful evening dress, donned their tiaras and went round the wards at night. And she'd spotted that the mind, as much as the body, suffers in war quite often. And she was way ahead of her time in what she was doing. And she also had not only her tiara, she went round the wards accompanied by her wolfhound. <laughs> Class, I call that, really. But we are talking, basically, what you were saying just earlier, really, about ordinary women performing extraordinary deeds. And, and probably what did help them was the power of uniform. I mean, do you think the social attitudes today um, have altered? I mean, were perhaps casual and, and really even sloppy attitude towards dress today. I mean, even we get criticism of breakfast on television, um, the dumbing down, you know, on, on Friday mornings that we go in become... sort of in casual trousers and a, and a T-shirt or something. Um, is uniform, do you think, unless for safety's sake, somewhat passe? I don't think so, because what has happened is we've become a much more egalitarian society over the last century. Um, uh, rank and privilege are not so important, but what has actually still come through through 
is that people like to delineate themselves. And if you think that uniform has gone, just you go to the bank, just you go to the building society, hang on, just you look at the shop assistants. There is still an insistence that some people, as it were, join the clan, are made to look as if they belong. Uh, and on top of that, uniform is still there in our views of clothes, because the way you're describing clothes, in fact, are not a description of how um, of covering the body. They are of delineating what you think of your position. And only people who are confident actually wear casual clothes. If you think you're going to be frowned upon by people up there or other people, you will wear what you think they want you to wear. The whole subject is very, very complicated and we certainly haven't lost um, the concept of uniform and the fact that whatever you're wearing conveys a message. Of course, some people in your book, when we moved on to World War II, didn't wear uniform, they couldn't wear uniform, and they were perhaps the bravest of all, those wonderful women who who, who went in and helped. I mean, they, they, they were the, the Secret Service, the SOE, the, the Secret uh, Order Executive, wasn't it? Special Operations Special Exe Operation Executive, Executive, yeah. Yeah, and these women were dropped behind enemy lines, quite large numbers of them. Some of them were tortured, captured, tortured, and some of them were murdered in the concentration camps. Enormously brave, and some of them very young women. Um, again, interesting about them that uh, their exploits at the end of the war, they had been extraordinarily courageous. When the cabinet met to discuss the information that was coming out and back to them from France and Germany about what had happened to them, these men in the cabinet felt they couldn't actually tell the public because they said it would reflect upon the fact that we men had knowingly allowed these women to go into great danger. And so their story, for a long time, was never told. And that's the story right through the century, that somehow the stories never quite got you know, celebrated. And that's what I wanted to do. Well, you are, as I think I said, um, or uh, maybe omitted to mention very importantly, that you are um, a trustee of the, war, the Imperial War Museum in, in London. What has been the reception of of a course that's to camouflage. So well, far. we have got um, the exhibition starting soon, and the very the people putting it together. It's quite fascinating. The the professionals say, do you know, when people come into a museum like this, which is about all aspects of war, a great number of them say, is there anything um, is there anything about women? Because, of course, they're confronted with, you know, huge tank and guns and there's aircraft suspended from the ceiling. And, of course, there are several of the specialist, uh, um, uh, you know, exhibitions internally which mention women. But very rarely do women really get their, their correct due. And we hope we are correcting this. Well, in future, in proportion to the number of women now serving, there will be a new figure in uniform, the Chelsea pensioner in her scarlet coat and tricorn hat. And I'm sure that uh, Kate would agree with me there. Corsets to Camouflage, Women and War is published in hardback by Hodder and Stoughton and, of course, written by Kate Adie, a remarkable guest on this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Kate, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. <laughs>